In a lot behind the trailer, she had found some white rocks she used to circle the buckeye tree in the center of the yard. It hadn't grown any that she could tell, but the trunk had lost its powdery film, a sign she had read that indicated returning health. The gardening book Forney had given to her for her birthday was already looking worn. Just behind the trailer, she started a small guard, vegetable garden with potato eyes and onion sets, then lettuce seeds Dixie had gave her. She had asparagus crowns for sister who claimed if they took root, they would grow for a lifetime. Sometimes Mr. Sprock would come in the evenings to bring some new seeds or help her weed the garden. Then he'd stay over to hear Forney read. Mr. Ortiz came a few times too, and when he was there, Forney would read louder, hoping perhaps that volume would ensure comprehension. Afterward, afterward, when there was talk about the reading, Mr. Ortiz would voice his opinion always with enthusiasm and always in Spanish. Sometimes Dixie came over with ice cream she had mixed up. Forney would turn the crank and freeze it, and they'd eat it on the front porch until mosquitoes drove them inside. Dixie never ate ice cream herself. She said it gave her diarrhea. Nobody believed that she went to all that trouble just so that she could hold Americas for a couple of hours. Once Henry and Leona had a fish fry in their backyard. But they argued all night over whether the baby should sleep on her back or her belly. On the 4th of July, the Ortiz girls set off their fireworks in the street while everyone gathered on sister's porch for lemonade. Nobly sometimes worried about all the attention the baby was getting. She wondered if too many could love her too much. But America's flourished. She never grew fussy with the crowd around. They could pass her from hand to hand, from arm to arm, and she wouldn't make a peep. She could sleep on Forney's shoulder in Dixie's lap or across Leona's knees. She could awaken to the smiles of the Ortiz girls, a waltz with sister or the touch of Mr. Sprock's hand. Nobly could hardly believe or hardly imagine that one tiny creature could create so much love, and that was the problem. The more Nobly loved her, the more she feared she might lose her. <clears throat> at times, Nobly's fear would come rushing at her, so sudden it would be gone before she quite knew it was there. Or it might settle on her slowly, press against her chest, and build up under her uh, heart, pounded as her, pound, her heart pounded with it. Now and then it was less insistent, only some vague uneasiness, a fragment of a bad dream nagging at her. But at its worst, it was real, a shadow, a shape lurking just beyond the edge of light. Always it came without warning, without cause. While Americas was in her bath, her spindly arms and legs soaked, slippery as cooked spaghetti. With Nobly's new fear, the old superstitions held greater peril. Dreams of locked doors could invite croup or measles. Gray horses or broken shoestrings might signal pneumonia or scarlet fever. Two crows in the same tree might foretell polio or worse. But the greatest portent of disaster, her nemesis, number seven, now sent her running to Americus, running to feel for lumps or fever, to look for spots or swelling, to check her mouth, her heart, her lungs. A seven, any seven, was a scourge, a plague, an affliction. But year, weeks earlier, at the moment Americus had begun her seventh day of life, nobly had confronted the most terrifying seven of all. The night was filled with lurking strangers, the morning with rabid dogs. Every mosquito carried malaria. Each gas jet leaked deadly fumes. Knife blades became savage weapons. A gentle breeze, a killer storm. Nobly checked the windows, guarded the doors, walked the floor. She saw danger in every car that came down the street, whether she recognized the driver or not. The, first time, the first few times she dozed, she saw Willie Jack running at them. His face twisted into a vicious grin. She held Americus in her arms from midnight till midnight, and when it was over, when the danger had passed, she wondered how she would survive the seventh week, the seventh month, and the seventh year. Willie Jack arrived at the New Mexico State Prison on a Monday, and by the following Friday, he had six stitches in his rectum, 
a broken nose, a nickel-sized chunk of flesh out of his left buttock, and a bruise the size of a frisbee on his chest. Prison was going to be a hard place for Willie Jack to get used to. They had fast-forwarded him out of Santa Rosa. He was in the county jail only nine days before his trial, which lasted just over an hour, and his sentencing took less than three minutes. He was going to do 14 months in prison, whether he behaved himself or not. But then, a good, but then, good behavior had never been a quality Willie Jack had aspired to. His prison troubles had started early. The broken nose came on the first day when the guards tried to lock him in a cell, an incident that got him three days in isolation. The chewed buttock and torn rectum came about on the second night when he was raped by a pair of brothers named Jumbo and Sam Sammy, who bought him from the guard in solitary. The bruise on his chest, seemingly the most uh, minor of his injuries, was in fact the most serious. It transpired because he wouldn't give his uh, cake to a little man called Sweet Tooth, an odd name for a man with no teeth. By the end of the first week, Willie Jack had been in the infirmary four times. The doctor, Dr. Strangelove to the inmates, found Willie Jack to be wildly attractive, a situation that would not work to Willie Jack's advantage. Dr. Strangelove's response to sexual attraction was physical pain and his craving from Willie Jack was strong. When he packed Willie, Jokes, Willie Jack's broken nose, he stuffed it with so much cotton that the soft tissue of the septum was perforated. When he treated the wound on Willie Jack's buttock, he added a pinch of, a, of Drano to the salve he slathered across the teeth marks around the soft, torn flesh. And when he stitched up Willie Jack's rectum, he signed with a flourish and fine suture his name. Willie Jack's cellmate was a Navajo called Turtle, who didn't know how old he was. His eyes looked like the whites of runny eggs, and his skin was so thin Willie Jack could see the blood oozing through the veins that snaked across the old man's temples, and he didn't talk much. In fact, they didn't speak until the fifth night, the night Willie Jack's heart stopped. He was asleep when it happened, when the pain inside his chest rolled him onto his back and pinned him to the mattress, but it was the silence that brought Turtle to the side of the bunk, silence that made him stare down into Willie Jack's face. This heart. It ain't beating, Turtle said. His voice was soft, his speech unhurried in the comfortable way men talk to themselves about malfunctioning carburetors and misfiring pistons. Willie Jack tried to speak, shaping words with his lips to tell the old man to get help. But the pain inside his chest choked off sound. It ain't beating, Turtle repeated. Willie Jack could feel the pressure building inside his belly, then ballooning beneath his ribs and chest where Sweet Tooth had hit him. My grandfather's heart heart stopped beating once, Turtle said, for three moons. With his chin tilted up and his lips peeled back tight against his teeth, Willie Jack gulped for air and fought for breath. Charlie walking away told us that he was not dead. He told us to be patient, so we were. Willie Jack's arms began to whip from side to side, his fingers scratching at air. But it is not easy, it's not an easy thing to wait for a heart to beat. Turtle's words started drifting away, rising through something icky and thick floating over Willie Jack's body. Willie Jack would not remember the sing-song pattern of sounds in Navajo or the tapping of Turtle's gnarled fingers on his chest, but he would remember, though not until much later, and always when he wanted not to think of it, the sound of Nobley's voice, thin and distant like an echo. Give me your hand. Do you feel that? Can't you feel that little bump, bump, bump? Feel right there. That's where the heart is. And finally, he felt a muted thump inside his chest. Then moments later, another, then two, beats out of time, stumbling, staggering to fall into the rhythm Turtle rap tapped out, the rhythm for Willie Jack's heart to follow. Claire Hudson, the prison librarian, had sad eyes, eyes that looked even sadder when she smiled. A big smile, which did not decorate Claire's face often, often filled her eyes with tears, as if smiling resulted more from pain than happiness. 
She was a big woman who had to shop for queen tall pantyhose and a size 11 shoes double E. She wore dark clothes, stiff gray garbadines, navy twills, and black serges, boxy suits with high necks, long sleeves, and tight collars. Claire avoided garments with lace, bows, and fancy buttons, and she owned no jewelry, not even a watch. She had a strong disdain for anything showy, allowing herself only one extravagance, band-aids. Claire Hudson carried band-aids in her purse and pockets, in her suits and her bathrobe. She kept them on her desk, the dash of her car, her bedside table, with her gardening tools and her sleeping kit, her sewing kit. She stuffed them in teapots, vases, and bowls, in her lunch sack, between pages of her Bible, and under the pillow of her bed. Pillow of her bed. She wore them constantly and in abundance, from her scalp to the soles of her feet. She wore sheer, clear, medicated, and white, and she used specific sizes and shapes for certain areas of her body. Circular spots for her throat and face, juniors for her fingers and toes, three-quarter by threes on her torso, and one by threes on her arms and legs. Occasionally, she mixed them to form overlapping protection if, she need, if the need arose. She covered warts, moles, ingrown hairs, pimples, cuts, fever blisters, burns, abrasion, hagnails, and bites, eczema, scratches, and rashes. Claire had spent her life, all 61 years of it, hiding her injuries from the world until she opened the most painful wound of all to prisoner number 8755506, Willie Jack Pickens. She was just applying a fresh medicated junior to a paper cut on the pad of her index finger when she saw Willie Jack for the first time, when he entered the library with a crew coming to clean. Finny! Claire shouted at Willie Jack, and then she collapsed. She was carried to the infirmary where Dr. Strangelove revived her with smelling salts but not before he peeked beneath a dozen of her band-aids, disappointed not to find raging infections and disfiguring wounds. By the time Claire had recovered and returned to the library, the cleaning crew was gone. But it didn't take her long to get Willie Jack back. When he walked through the door, she once again called him Finny, this time her voice a little more than a whisper. Willie Jack edged a couple of feet into the room and then stopped and studied Claire suspiciously. Come on in, she said, motioning him toward her desk. It's okay. They said I'm supposed to mop up a spill in here. Without taking her eyes from Willie Jack's face, Claire shook her head, a gesture of disbelief. It's just incredible, she said. Incredible. What? Willie Jack asked. She picked up a framed photograph from the corner of her desk, stared at it a few moments, and then handed it to Willie Jack. An enlargement of a snapshot, it showed a young man standing on a stage playing a guitar. Can you believe it? Claire asked. Willie Jack wasn't sure what he was supposed to believe, but he nodded as she handed him another picture. In this one, the same boy held a trophy in one hand, a guitar in the other. This was taken to the state fair, and he was 18. Willie Jack could tell the pictures were old, but he didn't know if that was a clue. Does it feel like you're looking at your twin? Claire said. Then Willie Jack knew what he was supposed to believe. He and the boy in the picture looked alike. Yeah, he said as he handed the photos back to Claire. Who is he? My son, Finney. Oh, Willie Jack looked across around the library. What did you spill? Claire's glance wandered from the picture to Willie Jack's face and then back again. It's in the eyes. She touched a finger to the face in the picture. The lips, too. One time a girl drew his picture on a napkin when he played at a club. She gave it to him with a note that said he had beautiful lips. Claire smiled her sad smile. Willie Jack moistened his lips with the tip of his tongue. Somebody had told him once that wet lips were sexy. This was his last picture, Claire said, nodding at the one with his trophy. He was killed two months later. She looked at Willie Jack then as if she expected him to say something, but he didn't. He was hit by a drunk driver on his way home from a dance hall in Carlsbad. Oh, well, Willie Jack said, that's too bad. Twenty-two years ago, about the time that you were born, I guess. 
Claire put both pictures back on her desk, but I just can't get over it how much you look like Finney. You've even got the same build, about the same size. Well, how tall was he? Five eight. Willie Jack pulled himself to his full height and then some. Yeah, that's about right. He hated the prison shoes he was wearing. The only thing he'd found to stuff them with was toilet paper, but it kept working its way up the back of his heel. He had the sweetest voice. Everyone said so. Willie Jack watched a tear wash down Claire Hudson's cheek, spill across a band-aid near her upper lip, and then drop onto another tape to her wrist. This is all so pretty strange, he said. See, I'm a musician, too. Claire's hand lifted to her face. The guitar, Willie Jack nodded, a big gesture designed to communicate the full irony of the situation. And a singer. Musician? Claire said softly, reverence in her voice. Well, I mean, I was a musician. But seeing where I am right now, I don't figure I'm going to be playing no music. Oh, but you can, she said. No, my guitar. Willie Jack let his voice trail off as if what he was about to say was too painful. What? What is it, she asked. It's just, well, my guitar, I sure do miss it. But you can have your guitar in your cell. Didn't you know that? No, ma'am, I didn't. You just tell me where it is, and I'll have it sent here for you. Well, you see, there was a fire. My grandma's house burned. Lost everything. My house, my music, it's all gone. Willie Jack took a few moments to create a kicked puppy look and then brightened as much as possible. But I'm glad you told me about your scent. It almost makes me and your Finney sound like brothers, don't it? Claire Hudson smiled then, her eyes once more filling with tears. And Willie Jack knew right then that he was going to get a guitar, maybe even the Martin that he'd seen in the pictures, if it had survived. He knew he was going to get not only a guitar, but almost anything else he wanted while he was in prison. And he was right. The next day, Claire Hudson showed up with Finney's guitar, the Martin, and by that night, Willie Jack had taught, him, taught himself three chords. A week later, he was playing a couple of John Cougar Mellencamp songs. Within three months, he could write a song called The Beat of a Heart, a song that would soar to the top of the country's charts and that would, within three years, sell over a million copies. When Novely took a job waiting for her at Walmart, the other employees ran wild with rumors. Sam Walton was the father of her child. Nobly was blackmailing him with a threat of a paternity suit. Americus was going to inherit the, Wal the Walton millions. But by the time Nobly collected her first paycheck, gossip had already shifted to an affair between a 40-year-old married woman who managed sporting goods and her 19-year-old first cousin, a bushy-haired boy called P Petey, who worked in customer service. But if they had been paying attention, they could have added a new rumor to the mill on that payday when Novely took sister-husband's Toyota in to have the brakes fixed. She parked in front of the automotive department at the side of the store at 9.30. Just as she cut the motor, the big overhead door swung open. The 26-year-old Troy Moffat, slim-hipped and golden-haired, stood squinting against the sun. Hey, he yelled, you can't park there. We ain't open yet. I know that, she said, but I've got to get to work. Well, that ain't my problem. My problem is keeping this door clear. But I'm bringing it in to have it worked on. Then bring it in at 10 o'clock. I can't, she said. And you can't leave it there. Let me leave the keys with you and, lady, you're going to have to move your Toyota. Novely started the pickup, then revved the engine to show him how mad she was until it died. She tried to start it again, giving it a little more gas as the engine kept grinding, but it wouldn't turn over. Okay, okay, Troy yelled as he stomped to the side of the truck and jerked open the driver's door. Scoot over. Forget it, she said. Scoot over. I'll drive you to work and bring your truck back here. But uh, by then he was sliding under the wheel, his body pushing hers across the seat. She hoped the truck wouldn't start, but it did the first try. 
Okay, he said, let's make this quick. Where to? He backed out smoothly, then turned up the lane that ran parallel to the store. Go around the corner, left, toward the street. After he negotiated the turn, she said, stop right there. Or stop right here. What for? You said you were going to drive me to work. Yeah, well, this is where I work. She jabbed her thumb toward the door, marked employees only. Why did you just say so? His face reddened. I'm sorry. He smiled at her then, and for the first time, she noticed that his eyes were the color of brown sugar. It's the brake, she said, that scraping noise. She opened the door and slid out. The name's Nation. I'll pick it up at six. She slammed the door and marched away, feeling his eyes on the curve of her hips, pleased for some reason that he was watching her. As soon as Nobly got her lunch break, she headed for the snack bar to meet Lexi Coop, the only girlfriend she'd had since Rhonda Talley was sent to reform school back in the seventh grade. Lexi brought her children to Walmart two or three times a week. Cheaper entertainment, she declared, than miniature golf or the video arcade. At Walmart, she could load them into a shopping cart, then wander the aisles for as long as she wanted. They never demanded toy guns or Barbie dolls, never cried to get out of the cart or whined because they felt crowded. Their bodies soft and sticky, malleable as warm cookie dough, pillowed together, together free of sharp elbows and bony knees. Lexi always packed a sack of treats, jelly sandwiches or cinnamon rolls, banana bread, sugar cookies. Children shared their food and licked their fingers, then yawned and smiled while Lexi browsed the aisles in search of yarn or sequins or pastel cotton balls, materials for their holiday crafts. They produced Santa dolls and leprechauns, Easter baskets and valentines, but they were a little concerned with the calendars at a the time. They might dye eggs in January and make witch costumes in July, but there was never a question of being early or late. No one, not one of them cared. They were already crowded into a booth waiting for their order when Nobly arrived. Hi, Nobly, they said in unison. Nobly kissed them all, then wiped at a sticky spot on her nose. The children were wedged together like gummy bears. Bits of sugar and cinnamon stuck to their cheeks and their cheeks and chins. Their fingers glazed with jelly and something green. I went ahead and ordered for you, Lexi said. Good. I didn't have time for breakfast and I'm about to starve. Did you oversleep? No, sister is working at the IG IGA today. So Mrs. Ortiz is keeping Americus. By the time I got all of her things together and made three or four trips across the street, it was almost nine. You're lucky to have good sitters. Oh, and they all want to keep her. Dixie Mullins, Henry and Leona. I think they, they're glad when sister has to go to work. At some unspoken signal, all the Lexi's children slid out of the booth together as if they were permanently joined. They brought back trays of food that covered the table. Hot dogs, french fries, nachos, and onion rings. Then Lexi reached into her purse and pulled out a bundle of chopsticks held together by, by a rubber band. The children waited quietly as Lexi handed a pair to each of them. It may look strange, Nobly, but I have this theory. People who eat with chopsticks are thin. Do you know why? Mm, you think it's because they eat rice and vegetables, but that's not it. It's because you can't eat fast with these things. Lexi's chopsticks clacked like knitting needles as she piled jalapeno peppers on a stack of nachos and then scooped up a glob of cheese. I've already lost eight pounds. Her chopsticks cut a swath of the fries and scissored a hot dog in half. The two older children, Brownie and Praline, were as adept with the sticks as their mother. The twins, Cherry and Baby Ruth, whose motor skills were not as finely tuned, were nevertheless managing just fine. None of them complained or got angry, but each ate quietly and cooperatively, passing food, sharing drinks, and from time to time sighed with contentment. Lexi didn't speak again until she had finished eating and put her chopsticks aside. I met someone, Nobly. You mean, yeah, someone. Well, who? His name's Woody, Woody Sams, and he's nice, Nobly. He's really nice. Well, tell me about it. Well, Monday night, I worked the late shift in emergency because one of the night aides is in jail. 
So Woody came in, dislocated shoulder and abrasions, ran a motorcycle into the side of a pickup. Well, I patched him up, and when he was leaving, he asked me to go out for coffee, but I tell him I have to get home to the kids and let the babysitter go. So he asked me if he can come over the next night, Tuesday, and I said, okay, and he does. He brought a video of the Black Stallion and some presents for the kids, a puzzle, and some checkers. He really likes kids. He said he wouldn't, he couldn't have any uh, because when he was a teenager, he got the mumps, and they went down on him. Well, what does that mean, Nobly asked. They went down on him. Well, you know. Lexi pooched out her cheeks, made a popping sound, and then pointed to her crotch. They went down on him. Oh, here, honey, Lexi said to baby Ruth, you've got a piece of pickle in your hair. So did you and Woody? No, we didn't even kiss but once when he left. But it was nice. Anyway, he can't have kids, so I don't have that to worry about. I think I like him. You think? Well, he's not perfect or anything. Lexi lowered her voice, pulled her mouth into a frown. He chews tobacco, and he's an atheist. Oh, I guess no one's perfect. I know, Lexi shook her head. But girls like us, Snowbilly, we don't get the pick of the litter. Troy, the middle-aged man at the service counter, yelled to the back of the shop. Woman's here for the Toyota. Roy, Tr Mo Troy Moffat slid out from under the pickup, flashing Snowbilly a smile as he came toward her. It's more of a problem than I bargained for, he said, wiping grease from his hands with a towel already black. Is it going to cost a lot? Probably won't be too bad, but I won't be finished until tomorrow. He dodged then, feigning as if she might be tempted to throw a punch. Well, shoot. Do you need a ride? I could run you home. No, that's okay. Are you sure? Yeah. As she walked away, she heard him say something just under his breath, but she didn't turn. She didn't ask what he'd said. She'd walked two blocks, was crossing the four-way stop when a banged-up Ford pulled up behind her and honked. Come on, he said. He leaned across and opened the passenger door. It's on my way home. Nobly got in, shut the door. You know where I live? No, but wherever it is, it's on my way home. He eased the Ford across the intersection. Look, about this morning. He cut his eyes at her and grinned. I'm sorry. It's okay. I just hadn't seen you around. I know most everyone who works here, by sight anyway. Well, I haven't been here for very long. That's what I hear. Nobly eyed him suspiciously, certain that he had heard about her in Americas, but he kept his eyes on the road. I'm really going to need that truck tomorrow, she said. The woman I live with, it's hers, but she lets me drive it whenever I need to. It'll be ready by noon. He lit a cigarette. Nobody wondered if he chewed tobacco, too. I fixed a couple of things inside, your radio and that dome light. Look, I don't know if I can afford all that. See, I'm going to pay for it myself. It's a surprise for the woman who owns it. I ain't going to charge you extra, but when I drove it to check the brakes, I tried the radio, and then I noticed the dome light, so I fixed them. Well, thanks, she said, looking more angry than grateful. Do you sell books, he asked. What? Books? No. Well, you got God's plenty of them in that Toyota. Oh, I forgot. You think they'll be okay leaving them in there overnight? Are you kidding? I mean, they're library books, she said. They don't belong to me. Do you think any of those guys working automotive are going to steal books? Now, they might swipe a Willie Nelson CD or maybe a fishing lure, but they ain't going to steal a book. Nolly bit at her lip, thinking how upset Forney would be if he knew where his books were. What are they, anyway? Love books? No, she said. I used to go with the girl that read them love books. Uh, turn left here, she said. She was all the time talking about the flames of love and hearts on fire and stuff. His voice slid into a higher range as he curled his lips around the words. Oh, my burning soul of love. When his voice broke, cracked like an adolescent boy's, nobody laughed, and so did he. This is my street. I'll just get out here. No, I'll take you to your house. Which one? Or which way? She motioned to the right. It's a trailer at the end of the block. Do you want to go out sometime, he asked. Go out? 
yeah, with me on a date. Oh, well, I don't go out. I have a baby. People with babies go out sometimes, you know. I guess. You mean you guess you'll go out with me, or you guess people with babies go out? He smiled and winked one of his brown sugar eyes. So, do you want to go? We'll go where, she asked. Troy shrugged. To a movie. Dance. Um, shoot some pool. Whatever you want to do. As they pulled up in front of sisters, nobly saw Forney on the porch with Americus. Well, how about Saturday, Troy asked. I don't know. Well, I'll see you tomorrow when you pick up your truck. Maybe you'll know then. Thanks for the ride. As soon as Nobly stepped out of the car, Troy backed into the driveway and then turned on his bright lights, catching her in the crossbeam. Blinded by the glare, she stopped, unsure where she was going.